Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. Yeah, I'm Jason Harris. Woo, we're having a good time over here. I'm a filmmaker and a comedian, and yeah, I'm at a party at the cantina because out of my four friends who went on a dangerous trip, only three of them died. Let's party. Jason out here spoiling the end of the movie that we're about to talk about. <laughs> but it is a nearly 70-year-old movie, so I suppose it's okay that you did that. Um, however, as I've known, I, this is a, an aside, but as we've talked about a lot in in old, old, old movie reviews, there at least one movie review that I read for this did spoil the entire movie up till the very last moment. So. Jason, in the spirit of the times here, as we talk about the movies of 1953. Josh, I watched the movie, so it wasn't spoiled for me when I did that. It thing. wasn't for you, but for our listeners, it might be. But hopefully. <laughs> well, we hope that they're watching the movies ahead true, of time. True, true. And we always. And, and I and I want to say, Josh, this movie, it, whatever I just said there, it doesn't give away the whole thing. And also, even if I did give away the whole thing. The movie's still worth it. I agree with you 100% on all of those things. And we will spoil, as we always do. We'll we'll get into the, the whole discussion of, of the movie through to the ending. What is the movie? It's The Wages of Fear, the Palme d'Or winner at the Cannes Film Festival in 1953 from French director Henri-Georges Clouseau and a breakthrough film for him internationally, a movie that was highly acclaimed at European festivals in 1953. It won that Palme d'Or at Cannes, as well as a special mention for acting for co-star Charles Vanel in 1953 at Cannes. And it also won the Golden Bear, which is the top prize at the Berlin Film Festival in 1953. And as happened in the past, and you know, now uh, we get these international movies released simultaneously around the world a lot of the time. But of course, in the 50s, it took a while for these to trickle out in different countries. So in 1953, it was released in France, where it was the fourth highest grossing film of the year. It later on made its way to other European countries. In 1955, it won the BAFTA when it was released in the UK for best film. It had also won the French Syndicate of Cinema Critics Award for Best Film in 1953 and didn't make it here to the U.S. until 1955 when it was cut down by 35 minutes because censors or whoever distributed here in the U.S. decided that we couldn't have any anti-American sentiment in this film. So all the scenes of the evil American oil company got cut. You know, what's funny is I think you could cut 35 minutes and make this an even better movie, but not not based on the anti-American sentiment, based on a very rambling first hour that um, is far too long and and uh, not essential to the entire movie. It's not entirely essential. I feel like it does establish a lot of character relationships that pay off because once we get on the road and the premise here is that these four men, as Jason mentioned, who are kind of down on their luck and stuck in this small town in somewhere in Central America, right? I don't know. Las Piedras. There you go. But we don't, I think is that that's a fictional town, right? I mean, we don't establish this as a, in a particular Josh, country. It could be any town. That Josh. is the point. Yes. In Central America. Yes. But beyond as well. In our hearts. Anywhere American imperialism is holding down the locals while we get fat off of their work. 
that could be Lost Pietro. So true. Much like the metaphorical war setting mm -hmm. of the movie that we recently talked about, Fear and Desire, the Stanley Kubrick film. So, but right, but the first hour of this film establishes the relationships among these four men and a bit of their background so that once we get on the road when they've been hired by this oil company to take this incredibly dangerous journey in these two trucks to transport nitroglycerin to cap an oil well that's on fire. And then it's really pared down, right? It's, it's, it's suspense. It's minimalist. It's really focused on the danger of the drive. We already understand kind of who these guys are. Or did you not feel that way? Well, you know, uh, I think that's part of my problem with the first hour is the Joe character is completely different uh, from hour one to hour two. And I get that part of it is like he's lost his guts, but it is a complete 180 of a character. Though. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely different. I think, though, what you're saying is that, that that's part of the point, that he has all of this bluster in the first hour. And then when he's put to the test, it all falls apart. So I think it's an evolution of the character is meant to be an evolution, at least. Right. I mean, that, I mean, you know, that's we just mentioned the actor who is in, just awesome in this movie. Um, but I thought that that character went so far from one end to the other so quickly that it didn't really work for me. And I, I had some issues with him more in the first hour than the second hour and why he became such a um, force in Mario's Ma life. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I don't necessarily entirely disagree with you that this movie is two and a half hours long. And even the version that we have now that's available on various streaming services and whatnot here in the U.S. is still five minutes shorter than the original, original cut, which I don't think has ever been made available here. So it's a long movie and it certainly could have been trimmed. But I do think there's value in all of that setup to understand the relationships. I think that setup is done better than in the very famous remake that we'll maybe talk about a little later, William Friedkin's 1977 film Sorcerer, which also features a lot of setup and of questionable value, I think. But, uh, but I, you know, I don't disagree with you on that. Um, it's interesting to look at reviews because I did stick to looking at reviews from American critics from the time that this movie was released. And of course, all of them were shown this shortened version. And at a time when there was not uh, widespread information available about this necessarily, a lot of them kind of speculated on what was cut and why and didn't necessarily have all the details on it. So um, they're judging it in a slightly different format. But I thought it was impressive that even in that truncated version, the power of it mostly came through. Critics were, were very positive. Uh, about this film. Our old friend Bosley Crowther in the New York Times said, as heavy a charge of nitroglycerin as a motion picture may legally contain is figuratively and literally transported in the French film The Wages of Fear. At the outset, this lethally laden thriller looks as though it is taking off to be a squalid and mordant contemplation of the psychological problems of a group of men stuck without hope of salvation in a fetid South American oil town. But the characteristics of the people are not the absorbing thing in this film. The excitement derives entirely from the awareness of nitroglycerin and the gingerly breathless handling of it. You sit there waiting for the theater to explode. Well, uh, that has to do a lot with, um, you know, why uh, Josh pronounced the director's name for me one more Cluzo. time. 
Uzo. Yeah. yeah, I should know that one. That's a famous detective. That's, so yeah. I just, <laughs> I was just yeah. trying to re- respect, you know, be respectful yeah. and have you say it correct before I butchered Well, we, it. we've I butchered many names. Just because I have spoken French in the past doesn't mean we haven't butchered many foreign names here but, otherwise. But I think that's why this became such a breakout for him was because those sequences of those guys driving that nit- nitroglycerin, oh man, those definitely like are nail biting, you know, every cliche, edge of your seat, you know, hold your breath, take your breath away, whatever it is, like, the suspense is really, really amazing the way he's able to capture that. Yeah, it is. And I think, I don't know if it is somehow better because we've had all this build. I mean, there's not really suspense unless you know what's coming. But if you're not familiar, especially people in 1955 seeing this wouldn't have necessarily known exactly what it was about. I don't know if there's suspense in those early sequences, but I feel like because we've we've spent a lot of time with these guys there's there's more on the line maybe in those suspenseful sequences so i i mean i just think that look could you have halved it and gotten the same results that first hour do we see that mario is an asshole to his girlfriend that he kind of puts joe above all others that all these guys kind of look up to mario and are disappointed with the way he treats them after joe comes to town like you could have gotten there in half the time. Yeah, that may be true. That may be true. Um, and I don't know if that is, if it, you know, it, that may be also some of what was cut in addition to all the awful, inconsiderate uh, oil executive scenes with the, the, the ugly American guy who doesn't care about casualties or whatever. So. With a great American name, Bill O'Brien. Yep, yep, <laughs> indeed. Um, so Richard L. Coe in the Washington Post said, wow, that's the word for the wages of fear, as exciting a cliffhanger as these jaws have ever clenched through. Gad, what goings on? Four men drive two truckloads of nitroglycerin 300 miles over fiendish Central American roads to blow out an oil well fire. Watching them do it, or almost, will nip your nails to a nub. But the picture essentially is the triumph of Clouseau, the most individual film director in some time. The result is a picture as hard and unyielding as a rock. But while it is not for the queasy, the wages of fear is as penetrating, ruthless, and exciting as life itself. So he liked it. He definitely liked it. Yeah. He, I was looking, so in the, like in the Washington Post archives, trying to find this review, search this title. This guy wrote, two pieces on the wages of fear in three days in the Washington Post. That's how much he liked it. Um, Partly because I guess, you know, since this was delayed all the way to 1955 for its US release, it came out essentially at the same time as Diabolique, another Clouseau film that was very popular. So he was writing about them kind of together. And this is, you know, Clouseau is this big breakout uh, or whatever. But yeah, Co, he was all in on this movie. You know, when he said, he's the most original director to come along in some time. Like, you know, this is, this to me is not a period the fifties. I don't know as well as like the seventies and obviously eighties and beyond. So I'm wondering kind of which directors he was thinking about, um, you know, that kind of struck that chord before this movie. Right. I mean, the fifties is not known as a period of kind of cinematic revolution. It's definitely, entrenched with the the Hollywood studio system and they may not be getting a ton of 
foreign films like this that actually make their way in a in a wide manner into U.S. theaters. There was at least one review that took pains to mention like this is subtitled as foreign films often are or something <laughs> like like explaining the concept of subtitles to the audience that might not be it familiar is. with that. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, presumably a film, a professional film critic would know more than an average moviegoer and would have seen more foreign films. But yeah, I'm not sure who he's comparing this to. But, you know, to that point, yeah, you definitely get the proto French New Wave feel with a lot of this movie. So what, 15 years ahead of when it really kind of blossomed, I'd say. Yeah, I think so. And it was interesting to me to read supposedly that Clouseau was one of these considered one of these stodgy old directors that the new wave pushed aside. And I would have thought he would have been more like Jean-Pierre Melville, who was someone who was working in this period that the new wave embraced. But I guess not, because I'm with you. I feel like there's a lot of early influence there going on. Well, they're all dead now anyway, Josh. Well, that's that's a valid argument. That's that's how I feel like many of the French New Wave would look at it. So that is true. That, once that's the one I now took that Godard it. is gone, it's all forget about it. Uh, so finally, Philip K. Schuer in the Los Angeles Times said, "Few audiences ever have been dragged through as punishing an ordeal as that which awaits them in the wages of fear. What follows is a study in detailed suspense." Cluzo's camera is as concerned with the animate as the inanimate. He uses props like people and people like props, squeezing the last ounce of graphic illusion from each. Your heart is scarcely out of your throat before another crisis develops. The acting of the quartet is life itself, even to the revealing of the complex jealousies that grow among them. Though edited for the U.S., the picture contains a strong hint of anti-capitalist bias but it is far less likely to subvert you than to give you literally the cold shivers. So I thought this is my point, right? So if we saw less of that kind of relationship in the first hour, which we saw so much of, and you're already on this trip with these guys that is uh, so harrowing and so the stakes are so high, um, the wages are so fearful um, Mm. that because they keep connecting on the road because one breaks down one's going slow like you you know and you have all these scenes with the the twosomes as well i felt like that was where you could really lock and load on that and you know double down so to speak yeah i mean you're right about that i feel like again to me it's like it 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 builds on what we already knew but yes you could pare that down and there are a lot of scenes in the early part of the film with characters who don't go on this trip where it's just the flavor of the town and all these guys who kind of hang out in that one bar. And a lot of them, once they don't get picked to be drivers, we don't really see them anymore or care about them anymore. Right. Then that's, that goes for Mario's love interest. That goes for the owner of the cantina, people who aren't even applying for the job. Right. Right. You know, so, and uh, you see it with the, reveals from the oil company as well like it's just a bunch of oil men talking to each other right like there are definitely things you could trim out of that first hour that i think would have helped carry the momentum of course as we said josh once the momentum gets there it takes off 
like a runaway truck on a small Central American road. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I would say those scenes with the oil man, which was presumably the main stuff that was cut for that initial American release, I thought that was a lot more essential because it really gets to how little regard they have for the lives of the people who work for them. I mean, there's a great scene where the Bill O'Brien, one of his subordinates is like, oh, this this guy who was, you know, horrifically injured in the explosion, his mother is calling. And Bill O'Brien is like, eh, just call her back if he dies, basically. And it really gets the callousness of this. Yeah, I don't want to jump into defending them, but like, the, their jobs weren't easy either, but that's I'm not defending the actions of them. Yeah, okay. uh, I will instead, Josh, give you two more quotes about the movie. All from right. Other reviewers, you know, Pauline Kale said this is the most original and shocking French melodrama of the 1950s. Yeah. And that's like 30 years later, I think that she said that. So she's had time to really evaluate. And that's still how she feels, though. So. And uh, Ebert, I'm guessing, probably in his book uh, of the uh, 1001 movies you have to see by Leonard Maltin, wrote, um, the film's extended suspense sequences deserve a place among the greatest stretches of cinema, which I've already said I agree with to you, Josh. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I had heard that so much that coming into this, I was like, this is going to be the most suspenseful thing I've ever seen and maybe was slightly let down by that. I do think there's occasional limitations because of just the technology of the time that when they're shooting like the guys in the truck and it's obviously like rear projection, it feels a little less visceral. But yeah, I mean, so much of it is clearly location and real stunt work and everything and is 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 definitely super, super suspenseful. So you, you said you heard that so much. You got a lot of chatter going on on 1953 French import movies there, do you, Josh? I mean, I have read about these films. This is a famous film. I'm sure I read articles <laughs> about it. Maybe I read Ebert's piece that you quoted. I don't know. It's a thing. Just because you and All I right. hadn't discussed it doesn't mean I didn't hear about it. I guess that's fair. You are allowed to keep your secrets. Yes, about <laughs> films from the 1950s. So, um, I don't know. Had you heard anything about this before seeing this? Were you familiar with that? No, and I didn't, I didn't know about the movie. Honestly, the title sounds so, uh, just mundane. And like, I was like, oh, this can't be a, I didn't, I wasn't looking forward to it just based on the title alone. But, um, that's why you don't judge a movie by its title book by its cover. Of course, this was based on a book. A George Arnold novel, Josh. Yes, which had that same title. Um, yeah. In- but Josh, you were talking about the success. Uh, in France, it had 7 million uh, tickets sold, which is a pretty big deal. Yeah. And I couldn't, you know, as often as the case for movies this old, I wasn't able to find any figures on the exact budget or the exact overall box office take. But yes, it was a huge hit in France. And I think that was one of the things is that for a, a foreign film to make it to the US in this period, it had to be like, you know, top award winner at multiple film festivals and huge box office hit in Europe in order for U.S. distributors to bring it over here and then butcher it. Yeah, well, you could see Michael Bay's remake of it coming next year on Shutter, Crackle, whatever. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about. Yeah, I think this is a movie that it w- maybe not Michael Bay, but somebody will probably remake this again, I would think. So, um, yeah, but I had never seen it before either, although I had heard about it. It was certainly something that I thought I ought to see, which is always nice with this podcast when there's movies that come up that I think, oh, I've wanted to see that. And now here's a chance to see it. So glad that I did. 
And uh, Dave, had you ever seen this? I had not, and uh, I was looking forward to it, and I watched it. I also watched Sorcerer, the remake, uh, and I liked both of them. Dave putting in the work. Yeah, I watched Sorcerer. Yeah, he, saw, he watched Diabolique also. I sure did. Man, Dave, yeah, that's you, you're ahead of both of us here, because I did watch Sorcerer, yeah. but uh, didn't have time to watch Diabolique, so um, yeah. yeah. That's uh, go, Dave. You can just take over from here, really. There we go. I got all I, my notes. I didn't. I didn't watch either, but instead, I uh, did take advantage of um, Central American workers. <laughs> That's good. I, was, I thought you were going to say that you you drove some nitroglycerin like across town or something just to see how that would go. No, no, I, I'm an American. I never put myself in. That's true. You you hired a day laborer to do it for you. Yes, in a in the small neighborhood. Las Piedras, which could be anywhere. <laughs> like down the street. Does sound like a Green Valley uh, development. That's uh, true. A, li- a nice I... little housing subdivision. <laughs> <laughs> could be. Uh, did you uh, find anything else on the background of this film, Jason, that you want to talk about? Uh, in 2010, the film was ranked number nine in Empire's list of the 100 best films of world cinema i'd like to know the ones that beat it wow yeah that's really high so i assume that would be a list that excludes like english language films but i don't know yeah well Well, still that's a very high ranking yeah someone put a call into empire yeah we'll do that we'll get we'll get back to you on this and we will come back in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on the wages of fear Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about Cannes Film Festival, Palme d'Or winner, The Wages of Fear from Henri-Georges Clouseau. And I just wanted to say that again. Yeah, give us the, uh, give us the title in French, Josh. Uh, Les Wages of Fear? Hang on. Uh, Le Salaire de la Peur, it looks like, is what it is. So I'm nice. trying. My uh, my high school French really coming in handy here. Yeah. So I'm excited though, Jason, because after you spent most of our last episode uh, deriding not only that movie but the entire <laughs> cinema of 1953, you liked this movie. Yeah, I liked it. So we're at two and two. So I'm back on 1953 as solid. You know. Yeah. Um, no, I really like this movie. This is one that. Uh, snuck up and surprised me that first hour i was not liking it as i said not that not that it was like disdain but it was just it just kind of felt pointless after a while that first hour and i did not see with you know going in i didn't really know much about it so i didn't realize the whole second hour was basically like a really really good action movie right from a long time ago right you know so and a lot of those times like you know, before technology, I know you were talking about the hindrance of the technology, but a lot of the times before you could CGI everything and, you know, utilize all that technology, I find those to be like some of my favorite uh, sequences and actions uh, scenes in history because you're really using landscape and, you know, practical effects and everything. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I did say that there are some limitations um, for me, like I said, especially the kind of uh, two shots or of the the guys when they're in the trucks driving and you can tell it's a rear projection. But you're right. On the other hand, there are some great practical sequences. Uh, any of those bits where they have to kind of overcome obstacles yeah. have been done practically. The, the, uh, the one sequence that to me is just like, 
the best use of the practical effects, I think, in this movie is where they encounter a point where looks like the, the road is kind of under construction and there's this rickety wooden platform over like hanging over the side of the cliff. And in order to get around this corner, they have to take the trucks out onto the platform, which is corroded. The wood is rotten. And you see it both times, like both trucks do it. And each time it's just so suspenseful. And all of you can tell that that thing is really built. It's really going to collapse. And that that sequence was great. I think there were like three big ones, right? There's that. There's where they drive over the washboard, which is that kind of uh, road where you have to keep a certain amount of speed uh, going on. And then the third one is that area where the kind of uh, gusher had already hit and the pond is filling in. And they basically are having to drive it through this um, pond of oil. And you you even look at it and you're like, why would you do that? Like, but. Uh, but yeah, those were those were all those were the big three for me. Yeah, those are all really good and suspenseful. I mean, the other big obstacle is this giant boulder that they end up blowing up. And that's not a suspense piece in the sense of the cars, the trucks aren't moving, but there's definitely a lot of those like quick cuts as they 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 set up this sort of improvised explosive device with the nitroglycerin and it's all very rickety and you know makeshift and whatever and all these cuts where you're waiting to see is it going to work out and then suddenly one of the characters luigi is going to run back towards it and so that is a very suspenseful one too even though the cars aren't moving right so josh let me tell you you know beyond the i thought the length of the first hour what what lost me was i was so confused because joe is like he comes into town and Mario, like he he just like adores him immediately. He tells his girlfriend to screw off. He, you know, tells his other friends like, ah, this is my guy now. Right. And it's like the idea is that Joe was like this kind of big time gangster, at least in Mario's eye. But he literally has ended up in Las Piedras, uh, you know, which is a town where nobody's doing well, right? right? Including Joe, and that's why he ended up there. So the whole idea of why he was there, that kind of threw me. And then he really is like this real alpha power player in that first hour and just becomes less and less and less um, throughout the movie, which I get as a, like you were saying, a character evolution, but it basically goes from like all to nothing in one scene. Right. I mean, it does feel a little abrupt, but I feel like that's part of it is that this bluster is such a house of cards that it collapses almost immediately when he's faced with any kind of real challenge or danger or adversity or whatever. So, um, I mean, he does point a gun in his own chest that uh, another character is holding and is like said, yeah, you're not going to do it. So like, you know, he does showcase that type of fearlessness, I guess you would say, or arrogance. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He does. And but I, I do feel like also some of it is because for whatever reason, Mario, who is uh, played by Yves Montan, by the way, who was a very, very famous singer, mainly in France, but also a very well-known actor, the biggest star in this film. and. He just immediately idolizes this guy to a point where it does seem a little that also seems kind of abrupt and and extreme, maybe. But perhaps Joe is feeding off of that in those early scenes, and it is allowing him to have this bluster because this guy keeps propping him up. And then that falls apart later, too. Yeah, I guess, as you know, you kind of mentioned, we, we do focus so much on the girlfriend 
and all these other characters who are just like, ah, I don't like this guy. Uh, this is what I do in town, you know, and everything. And they just become irrelevant for the entire last hour and a half of the movie that it just it just kind of this. This is what I what I want to say, how much credit I'm giving to this movie. I can't think of too many movies where I'm like, man, this first hour is really underwhelming. And then I'm like, oh, that was a really good movie. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's certainly if you hear anything about this movie, that's what it's known for. Again, if if I heard about this movie before, I thought, oh, it's two hours of guys driving trucks. You know, I didn't even realize that it would be that long in terms of the setup. I think I mainly knew it because you watched it before I did. And you said, oh yeah, that first hour is real slow. And so then I an anticipated that it would take a long time to get to the actual sort of meat of whatever, what people love about this movie. Right. Uh, and Josh, did you find anything where they were like, hey, that first hour, it's a really, really nice setup to take you along for the rest of the journey. I mean, I'm sure there are people who say that, but not in those reviews. Again, the American reviews also in part, um, you know, they lose something like whatever's cut, I think is cut right. mainly out of that first right. hour, because once they get on the road, there isn't as much about what the oil company thinks or does until maybe the very, very, very end when, uh, when Mario finally arrives. And even yeah. then it's, it's, it's less so. So no, I'm sure there are people who do think that, or who at least think that there's value in that first hour, that it, it gives you a sense of the character's to care about them as they're on this treacherous journey in the second part of the movie. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with you that there's sure certainly could have been cuts there. And I mean, I think also like Mario's relationship with his girlfriend is so weirdly broad and he's so awful to her yeah. that it's almost cartoonish. And at first he's not at all. You see him like trying to sneak around to see her and everything. Right. This is what I mean. It feels uneven in these ways to me. You know? Yeah. I mean, it is really that arrival of Joe that suddenly he's like blows off the girlfriend to spend time with Joe and uh, his, his friend slash roommate, Luigi uh, played by Foco Luli, whose name I probably, or maybe Folcho Luli. He's an Italian actor. Um, suddenly he's like, dismissing him and treating him poorly, even though we see in the beginning of the movie that uh, Luigi like cooks them dinner every night and is really a good roommate. Um, so, and I know Jason that you always make fun of me for finding this in movies, but was there not a little bit of a homoerotic subtext to the relationship between Mario and Joe in the first hour I of mean, this movie? Don't you think that could have ratcheted up the tension if you, <laughs> if we had had some sexual, uh, you know, dalliances between the characters. Well, yeah. I mean, in 1953, you can't show more really than what they show here and just kind of hint at things. So I don't know if that was the intention or not. Yeah. Well, I always just um, live and let live, Josh. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not against it. I'm just saying I saw it there. It seemed like something that was, was evident. And I know you often disagree on those points. Well, Josh, you know what I saw? The Luigi character. And Dave, similar hair. There you go. I, yeah, you know, yeah, that's think you're, a think you're right. Theme, so <laughs> I mean, the other go. thing, of course, that that I saw Dave mention in his letterbox review is that the two of the main characters here in this movie are Mario and Luigi. That's right. And the character of Luigi is, I think, you know, he's meant to kind of look stereotypically Italian. So he's got the mustache and he's got the, <laughs> the hat. He kind of looks like Luigi from the video game a bit. 
I can't believe they ripped that off from um, Nintendo. <laughs> yes, which totally uh, existed in 1953. <laughs> so the fourth driver is Bimba, uh, played by Peter Van Eck, right? Yeah. And um, he's got a, the, you mentioned the explosion, them kind of blowing up the boulder. That's kind of his hero moment in the whole thing. And, you know, it, it, Again, like we're saying, there's so many of these characters in that first hour. You're like, wait, which one is he? And like, why'd they pick him to drive or whatever it is, you know? Right, so, right. Um, so, Josh, I just do. I do want to say one thing. And I referenced it in the beginning. But like, so I didn't like it. Then I loved it. And in the last five minutes, just like, ugh, no, did not work for me at all. And I'm going to go deep into the spoilers. Uh, at this point, Bimba and Luigi's truck, uh, it has blown up. And that was a real, uh, you know, punch to the gut the way that was done. Yeah, because after all this time we spend with these incredibly suspenseful sequences where they're all almost about to die at every moment, that explosion of their truck comes in, in a second. It's off screen. We just see like a flash. And uh, either is it jo- Joe or Mario, one of them are like kind of trying to roll a cigarette and there's like this sudden gust of wind. Yeah. And yeah, that's that's, Joe. that's a really powerful moment. Yeah. Right. So and then um, Joe and Mario are driving along. We get up to that whole sequence where they have to drive through the pool of uh, oil in which uh, Mario, he feels like if he stops, like the nitroglycerin is going to explode and the truck will explode and they'll all die. So he drives over the pool and drives over Joe's leg, thereby, you know, destroying his leg. He has no more leg at this point in time. Yeah. See, I wondered, okay, so you're saying you you thought that Mario thought that if he stopped, it would explode. And my impression was more that he thought if he stopped, he'd get stuck. And that he runs over Joe's leg, not because that's the only way to not explode and for them both to die, but that's the only way to get out of the pool and get to the oil field and get the money. To me, that was a moment of like pure greed for him. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's possible too. Yeah, you're you're yeah, that's a totally fair one. You know, he does yell at him many times to get out of the way. He does, but he's like stuck in this viscous oil that's covering him. Are you saying that he didn't do enough to move out of the way no, of this giant I mean, truck? And how about it for uh, Charles Vanell in that? Like you see him just descending into this goop yes. over and over again, right? Yeah, you're you're probably right. That you know, now that you mentioned that, that's probably. It. But I do think there is the idea of like, hey, we we don't know what the fuck is going on here, like. Uh, we have to keep going, right? Or else we're going to die. Yeah. For, you know, we're not going to get our money and we're going to be dead. That's a double whammy. Josh, <laughs> right? mm-hmm. Both Especially because they've already seen their friends, die, you know, die. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but anyway, they, they, they get through it. They get through all this and everything. And then uh, they get there and uh, they're heroes and every, uh, you know, they're able to, to stop the fire and Mario is regaled as this hero. Joe, as we had said, dies. And then we see Mario driving back and it's intercut with them and the people of the cantina. And the cantina people are like throwing this big party like Mario's coming back. Like no kind of regard that the other three are dead. Right. Well, and they, Mario, all, they all didn't like Joe. Right. He was a dick to all of them. But the other two of them were like, you know, yeah, like it would be like, ah, Sam's coming back. But Norman Cliff died. <laughs> so. Yes. Um, but, um, but Mario, after going through all of that, right, is just like, 
again, I didn't feel like the character would have done after being so careful for so long and working so hard to get there. I just didn't feel like on the way back, he'd be like, hey, I don't have any nitroglycerin. I'll just swerve all over these really tight spiraling roads. It's not like he didn't know that the roads were dangerous, right? Yeah. So this whole ending of him like kind of barreling off the mountain and dying like felt very tacked on and like, you know, just there for the sake of putting it there. Like, here's here's more something to shock you than something that was earned. It didn't feel like it. Not to say anyone can't have a car crash, but this guy's like driving all over the road, swerving this and that. And it just didn't seem like that's what his character would do. Yeah. I mean, it is a little overdone. The, the, the degree to which he is sort of gleefully manically driving recklessly along this road. And the, the way that, that, that Clouseau is, is so like, wanting to punch you in the face with this like look how happy these people are and now we're gonna kill him and everyone thinks he's coming back and they're all gonna find out that he drove off the road for no reason whatsoever right it's ridiculous yeah it is a little much although i did appreciate that it uh it was just totally bleak it was like no everyone dies and i think the idea here is that these guys all have a death wish to some degree right I mean, Luigi says early in the film, because of his job laying cement or whatever, he's got a lung disease and he's going to die, right? Bimba was in Nazi concentration camps and Joe is whatever his gangster background is, you know, he's fallen apart. And Mario, uh, I don't know that we find out exactly what it is, but I feel like the reason not only for the money, but the reason a lot of these people volunteer for this is because they're sort of they don't have anything left in life. Right. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. They don't like that's that's the whole point of the town, right? Is yes. Like, no one's got any. Right. And and that even though Mario gets two thousand dollars, he gets four thousand dollars, I think, because he gets Joe's portion as well <laughs> since Joe died. And it's a lot of money. I was like two thousand dollars in 1953 is the equivalent of I think it was like twenty-two thousand dollars. In, in 2022. So, you know, a significant amount. They maybe got like $45,000 or something for doing this. Right. And also he's living in Central America where the cost of living is probably much cheaper. Yeah, he could probably buy all of Las Piedras for that much money. Um, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't actually mean anything. And and he just dies. But I'm, I'm with you that it, it is done in a very heavy-handed kind of silly way. I think the way that they do this similar kind of ending in Sorcerer works better. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm with you on that, Jason. So I don't know. Is there anything else about this? Is there any other particular moment that you were really struck by that we should uh, mention? No, I, th- I think we, I mean, that, that Vanell is, um, is quite a good actor here. Yes. I mean, they're all good actors, but he really, really just owns the screen, doesn't he? He does. And he really gets that, like, breakdown of that character and how far he falls in terms of his sort of patheticness. And in addition to having his leg run over, he has malaria or he says he has like a touch of malaria, which I thought was hilarious. And this is how <laughs> determined there are. There's, you know, uh, Mario is asking him, are you okay? And he's like, ah, it's just a bit of malaria. Let's keep going. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. Let's just do it. Um, I do think we should, we should mention that the woman who plays the girlfriend that Mario mistreats so poorly is Vera Cluzo, who is the director's wife and was in a number of his films. 
So, uh, you know, give her right. some credit. Main as well. star of Diabolique. Oh, yeah. There you go. I believe Vera was the name of Pusso's uh, production company. Yeah. So, obviously, uh, you know, he was he was very uh, supportive of his wife and uh, and she's fine. But like you said, that's it's just sort of it's a really thankless part. And the character is treated poorly and she just has to kind of be very needy and whiny. And it's not she's not a well-rounded character, certainly. No. Hey, Dave, you should put in some uh, Eve Montaigne's music in, into this uh, episode so we can get the feel of that. <laughs> yeah, sure. There's some great music in the opening. Yeah, maybe we can uh make a sort of 1950s French version of our theme song. That would be easy, right? Dave, no problem. Just do that <laughs> yeah, in a couple minutes. Yeah. Great. Well, Dave, we we kind of uh, hogged this whole conversation. Um, what, did, what did you want to add to it? I mean, the only thing I would add Thanks, to it. Dave. Yeah. Uh, we'll be back right after. No. <laughs> Go ahead, Dave. No, I mean, you guys talked about all, all the important stuff, but like it, to that beginning, that hour long intro, the thing that I found so weird about it is that, like, I liked all of it. I just think the movie would be better if it was shorter. <laughs> like, you know, and I completely agree with everything you were saying about it, Jason. I just, I liked watching it. I just wish it wasn't there, which I think is a weird reaction to have. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right in that, like, if this movie had been just this sort of, like, ensemble character study about these dead-end guys who are stuck in this Central American town... I would have been fine with that and it would have been interesting. But yeah, because it turns into this whole other thing in the second part, it does make it feel like that first hour is is not really relevant anymore, even right. if it was kind of interesting. Yeah. So I win this episode. There you go. There <laughs> That's you the go. bottom line. That's what's <laughs> most important here. All right. Well, uh, I guess we should we rate this out of five. Uh, I, I was just going to. Canisters of nitroglycerin. That's, That's, that's it. the one. Let's do yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, it gets three and a half from me. And ho hopefully that other half has been uh, disposed safely. Yeah, <laughs> it's about to explode this podcast. It's very strange, though, because I like I said, I've never really can't think of like a movie where I'm like first hour bored ending totally lame. And then like three and a half. Yeah, man, everything else just, <laughs> just wails in this thing. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe my reaction to it was more even keeled than you, but I will also give it three and a half cans of nitroglycerin. So thankfully that adds up to a whole number of cans and thus we have no missing nitroglycerin. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, three and a half for me, it is good. Maybe I was slightly let down also by just big expectations, which happens a lot with classic films, but I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Yeah. This is why I stay away from all that 1953 French movie chat. There you go. You can mm -hmm. come into everything cold. Dave, how would you rate this? I'm also three and a half, guys. We're all there. All right. Well, that's good to be good to be in agreement and, and be positive about this after our uh, very contentious last episode. <laughs> so we'll come back then in a moment and talk about the legacy of The Wages of Fear. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 1953. We are talking about the Cannes Film Festival Palme d'Or winner, The Wages of Fear. And as we have alluded to, one of the big legacies of this film is the remake Sorcerer from 1977, which I feel like is, as much as this movie is a classic and is very well known, at least in the US, that film by William Friedkin is probably even better known and and is also widely regarded as a classic. 
And if I could say, Jason, I think you'll love that movie. Yeah, I wonder on the one hand, like I think there's a lot of great Friedkin stuff in that movie that Jason will love. And I I liked it. I, I think I liked them about evenly, but I did like them both. But on the other hand, I feel like the setup stuff in Sorcerer is even less relevant and goes on <laughs> for longer. So I'm not sure how. Jason well, it does set up the ending, though. So, I mean, it, it makes the better ending because of the not yeah, better intro guys it's not from the 50s you can't just spoil it whenever you want. we can't spoil 70s movies but yeah you know it's interesting because the way you guys presented josh it almost sounds like deer hunter we're like i love that first hour and you're like oh that first oh, hour yeah. you know so but um yeah no i gotta watch it i'm glad you guys both did yeah yeah it's good and it, it's it's very 70s like i think you know it deer hunter is is actually probably a good comparison there in terms yeah. of what it's doing and good performances and everything. I mean, as I mentioned to you after, you know, if you watch French connection, you're like, who do you want filming a movie about trucks on, uh, you know, these, these highly difficult to navigate roads and adding that suspense. You, that's the guy you want doing it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and freaking, it does a good job of recreating that suspense while not copying exactly like all of the set pieces from the original, he comes up with different ways to do it and yeah. that are also extremely suspenseful. So I did like that as well. Cool. Well, have you, I know Dave watched Diabolique. I've still not seen the original Diabolique nor the Madeline Stowe remake. No, I haven't seen that or any other Clouseau films. That is his, his sort of second most famous after this and is also a classic, but was, how was that Dave? Was it good? I liked it a lot. I, I think I liked it even more than this. Um, wow. it, it's, you know, for, especially for the time period, I was surprised by how scary it was. It was like actually scarier than like most modern horror movies. And it's not really a horror movie, but it kind of gets there by the end. And uh, yeah, it's really good. Great performances. Uh, I liked it a lot. Cool. Yeah. There's a uh, documentary on Criterion of uh, Clouseau that I want to watch called The Mystery of Picasso that's supposed to be quite good also. Yeah. I mm. mean, he's definitely a major filmmaker internationally that I just am not familiar with. Other, you know, this was my first exposure to him. And, and this was, as we said, kind of a big international breakthrough for him. He'd been working since the 40s, but between this and Diabolique, he got a lot more attention outside of France and with awards and stuff and had a, a period of success that unfortunately was eclipsed not that long later by the French New Wave, which is, like I said, was a little surprising to me. But um, he made his final film in 1968 and had a lot of unrealized projects and died in 1977. So maybe a, a, not a huge filmography, but a, an influential and notable filmography. Right. And I think he moved. Uh, he was an early adapter as becoming, you know, moving from film to television. Yeah. And that seemed like um, as his films were less successful, that was where he was able to kind of move. As we said, uh, Yves Montan was a huge, huge star as a singer, as well as a major international actor. I feel like he's sort of like the French equivalent of Frank Sinatra. Does that sound right? <laughs> I'm glad uh, you chose that and not like the modern version <laughs> of Justin Bieber. Was something <laughs> justin bieber i figured you would say harry styles right now. oh either way you're no. still like 10 years behind Josh. yeah so. sorry and uh and at least uh, the harry styles is a better choice anyway because he's acted whereas justin bieber has not but uh no he's he's like the frank sinatra who's just in the same era and he continued to be a huge singing star as well as an actor in a lot of big classic movies if i've seen um 
Jason, did you see Z, the Costa Gavras movie with me? Did we watch that in our film club? I if you did, I wasn't there, but it's always on like my list of like, it's in like every like watch list I have. Yeah, it's, I, I don't remember a ton about it, but it is certainly a classic. And I remember seeing the French films Manon des Sources and Jean de Florette, uh, speaking of my high school French in those, in high school French classes that were uh, kind of toward the end of Montan's career in, I think in the 80s that were big international hits. He's also in Le Cirque Rouge uh, to, to talk about Jean-Pierre Melville, who is a sort of proto new wave guy and a million other things. But those are some of the biggest like international renowned films he was in. I got this quote about him, Josh, from the director Jean-Jacques Benet. Mm -hmm. He said of uh, Montan, he died on the set of IP5, The Island of Pachyderms, on the very last day after his very last shot. It was the very last night and we were doing retakes. He finished what he was doing and then he just died. And the film tells the story of an old man who dies from a heart attack, which is the same thing that happened. Wow. Did they film him dying to just get that, you know, really fully? Get the realism. Yeah, exactly. That sounds like something that would happen to Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. <laughs> also, uh, also, did you know that there were probably... Uh, or other IPs, if the IP five is the island pachyderms, I am like, not familiar with any of that. Maybe it was just a like a designation for the island. That does not sound like an international classic along the lines of some yeah. of the other films that he yeah. was in. <laughs> I don't know if Frank Sinatra was ever in the American equivalent. No, I don't think Sinatra ever got to the like B movie stage. He just kind of gave up acting after a while and and stuck to music. So. Charles Vanell was in over 200 films, including To Catch a Thief by Hitchcock. And man, like we said, he just really is real force here. Uh, Falcoluli was uh, not an, only an actor, Josh. He was an Italian partisan. He did fight the Nazis and appeared in more than 100 films between 1946 and 70. And his brother is the actor Piero Luli. Hmm. Yeah, he's, he's mainly, he's less of an international star. Than, than Montan, certainly, or or Vanel, who we should say was also in Diabolique, I believe, as well as another Clouseau film called The Truth. So they worked together several times. And Peter Van Eck was in movies, including uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and The Bridge at Remagen. And then uh, some Alfred Hitchcock's Presents. Yeah, uh, he also worked with uh, Orson Welles in Mr. Arcaden and was in Fritz Lang's final film, The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuse. Neither of which I've seen, but, um, you know, any career where you work with like Orson Welles and Fritz Lang and Alfred Hitchcock, I mean, come on, how that's amazing. Yeah. So, Josh, you, you guys mentioned um, you guys mentioned Sorcerer, but no one mentioned Violent Road, Hell's Highway, directed by Howard Koch in 1958, a earlier remake of it. Yeah, an, an unofficial remake, it seems like. Um, and I, I that movie is not well known, but I did look at the synopsis. And the end of that movie is they all survive and get to the oil field. So <laughs> less success. Spoiler um, alert. Yeah. Freakin <laughs> says his uh, adaptation is more based on the novel than on this one. Yeah. Hmm. Although, I mean, he also had think talked about how he uh, loved the Clouseau movie and that was his initial inspiration. And apparently Arnaud did not like this movie. So maybe Freakin's hmm. version is closer to the novel. Um, as impressed as I am with Dave for doing all this research, I would be more impressed if he had watched season one, episode eight of MacGyver Hellfire, which also 
took this as a plot point. Yeah, a lot of things. I was thinking of a movie, Jason, that I know you have watched called The Ice Road, starring Liam Neeson, <laughs> which is also clearly influenced by this. Very similar kind of story. A, a very bad Liam Neeson movie. It is, but it is these, these truckers who have to take this treacherous route for, I think it is even an oil company in that movie, isn't it? And uh, yeah, transport things. Yeah, if they don't get there, we're all gonna be fucked. <laughs> exactly. They got to drive it over this 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 thin ice and whatever. Dave, did you see this? There's only one road that this can go on. That road is covered in ice. <laughs> it's not the road is covered we, in we've ice. We've talked we've talked about it many times, we're but I I, I never saw it. But Jason did this impression on my podcast. Oh, so. did you do this on the like yeah. trailers episode? Yeah, when you, when you talked about this. That's, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean, this was you know I remember the ice road came out like you know, as we were all quarantined during the pandemic. And like, you would look forward to stuff like this during the quarantine, the halcyon days of quarantine. Mm -hmm. When you would look forward to the release of the ice road. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is not something to look forward to. It is indeed a very bad, like even by the standards of all these Liam Neeson B movies that he churns out is one of the worst. I did not like it. Yeah, I'm with you on that. (laughs) Speaking of which, uh, I, I brought up that Empire list that uh, Jason referenced earlier, okay. and uh, they have what to say if you're talking about the movie, and it says uh, to say it's the blueprint for modern day high concept thrillers, and I mean, yeah. there you go. I mean, that, that is exactly Liam Neeson mm-hmm. movies. Right. And What's number one on the list? Uh, number one. And is this all like non-English language films? Is that the idea? World cinema. Right. Well. English language films Anywhere are in, in the, the world. world. Hey, City of God, we did that movie on the podcast. Um, Is that number one? No, that's number seven. But uh, number one, Seven Samurai. All right, uh, that's uh, fair. Yeah. But no, but going to what you said, Dave, I think this is a movie that I could absolutely see getting remade again because it does feel like a, a blueprint for high concept blockbusters. And whether that's in an unofficial way like The Ice Road or in an actual, like, this is an adaptation of the novel and we've got the rights and we're following the story more closely kind of way, I, I think that's totally something that would happen because this is material that would fit with the modern sensibility. And it would yeah, not be so. as good. But, you know, but you could have a real diverse cast in there. And and um, I don't know, who would you want to direct this, Josh? I don't know. Not Michael Bay, though, I think. I feel like someone like one of these one of these B movie guys, you know that 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 you always like, like Jesse V Johnson or something, you know. Oh, Carnahan, Joe Carnahan would be good. Yeah, yeah. just be all. Then I wouldn't have to worry about a first hour of <laughs> character development. It would be like, whoa, can we get any character development? Yeah. These are all explosions. Carnahan would start it with the Boulder explosion and go yeah. from there. But yeah, I think this is. I mean, even though Clouseau was definitely not a B movie director, and this is. Uh, the opposite of a B, but you know, it's a Cannes Film Festival winner. That's that's as far away from B movies as you can get. But I feel like this is material that would do well with that kind of director. Uh, sorry, guys, I just made an offer to uh, Craig Zoller to direct the remake. <laughs> well, then you'll get two hours of the opening sequence. So you know that was the wrong choice as far as you're concerned. Yeah, but at least the action will deliver. Yeah, eventually. and America will be the heroes in that one. Right. Yeah, yes, that's right. true no. too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else on the legacy of this film that you want to talk about, Jason? No, check it out. Even watch that first hour in those last five minutes. Yes. But really dig in after in between there. If you watch the movie, do watch it from the beginning of the movie <laughs> until the end of the movie. That's Josh. what we advise. Yeah, I'll stick with that. All right. So that is The Wages of Fear. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. 
you can drive your nitroglycerin to our social media presence. Sure, why not? We're at awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. My letterbox is still go for Jason. Are you guys following? If not, we're fighting. Um, I have a website called Go for Jason. It probably veered off a mountain a long time ago. <laughs> but you can find me on all the socials at Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy. And I still have all those projects here in Las Vegas. Eat this comedy in the trivia party. You can check me out on, uh, where am I? What am I doing? <laughs> you can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, at SignalBleed on Twitter, and at SignalBleed on Letterboxd, where I am following Go For Jason, because I'm a good friend, and I do things yeah, like I follow, follow you, you on too. social media. That's good. Good for us. Yeah. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod and check me out on Letterboxd by David Rosen. Yeah, we're following you there too. I watched too. 25 trailers for the last episode of Piecing It Together I was on. <laughs> Jason is a dedicated viewer. That made up for not seeing Sorcerer. but There uh, you go. Yeah. You'll get to it. Also, I didn't watch the first hour of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jason, what are we talking about? Did I miss anything? Yeah, so. no, not really. What are we yeah. talking about in our next episode? Josh, it is an Oscar-winning documentary, and it's called The Living Desert. And Josh, as you know, we live in the desert, so we will be recording a podcast about the living in the desert. We'll, about <laughs> Wait, wait, I got it. Don't you stop me. I got it. We will be recording a podcast about the living desert while we're living in the desert. Amazing. So tune in next time for The Living Desert, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.